cliffcentral.com. There can be very little doubt that one of the most important geopolitical events of any of our lifetimes is probably taking place right under our noses. And people always say, well, um, you know, history will say, we very seldom realize when we're in the midst of history being written. That's exactly what's happening in Russia and the Ukraine at the moment. And the characters of this story are fascinating in and of themselves. Um, there are so many armchair and pedestrian experts around that it's a great pleasure to find someone who actually has done the heavy lifting, someone who knows exactly what's going on, someone who can make the best assumptions about things that the rest of us are gleaning often useless bits of information from the internet about. And really, when it comes to Russia and the Ukraine, I don't know about you, but I'm sick to death of hearing every other person who's suddenly overnight become an expert in this. So I decided, and I'm very delighted to have, the author of a book called Overreach, which I managed to make mostly uh, my way through in the last three or four nights. It is a really fascinating story. It's filled with all kinds of pithy detail. The book is written by a man called Owen Matthews, who joins us now. Uh, Owen, it's such a pleasure to have you on, and I love all those Russian icons in the background. Yeah, that's right. You can you can take take the man out of Russia. You can't take Russia out of the man. <laughs> I'm talking to well, you. Well, you are where I've been uh, living for the last year and a half. But you you do have uh, very deep roots that go into Russia, and you know both Ukraine and Russia extremely well, don't you? Uh, that's right. My mother's Russian. Well, in fact, as I used to say, uh, my mother is Russian from Kharkiv, but that's actually become uh, a rather politically incorrect thing to say, although it's actually basically mm-hmm. true, is that she was actually born into a Russian-speaking family in 1934 um, in Soviet Ukraine, in Kharkiv. Um, so um, the uh, uh, my roots and the roots of uh, my mother's ancestors actually go very deep into the history of Russia and Ukraine, and actually that's the start of the book, in fact, is that rather uncomfortable imperial legacy, which um, is that, you know, the... Um, fate of Ukraine and Russia have been so intertwined. It's very comparable to like England and Scotland or, or Britain and Ireland. Um, those sort of that common culture goes very deep. And it's one of the things that makes this war so complicated. And it makes what it's, it's one of the things that actually makes the end game of this war so unpredictable is that there are parts of Ukraine that actually, unfortunately, for the government in Kiev, actually do consider themselves Russians, uh, particularly the residents of Crimea being a classic example. Um, and um, the, the, the whole um, psychodrama that goes on in the head has gone on in the head of Vladimir Putin, which one of the things I tried to sort of get into uh, when trying to write this book, is mirrors exactly the kind of psychodrama that most Russians have. Because for them, you know, it's not just a sort of imperial colonial territory. It's actually part of their culture. It's part of the country that they think of as their own. So they, you know, part of this whole war is this sort of, you know, possessiveness that many Russians feel towards Ukraine. And obviously Ukrainians don't share that possessiveness. They want to be free and independent. But um, that's really one of the profound historical roots of this conflict. I, I would love to talk to you about that psychodrama that's playing itself out in, in Vladimir Putin's head. But before we get to that, you, you mentioned the history and you go into into some detail, which I'm delighted about. You know, Catherine the Great, Peter the Great, you know, all the way back to the, the, the foundations of, of Russian imperialism and the fact that 
up to just a few years ago, you know, we, we have very poor memories, uh, human beings. We, we, we don't really have to think too far back to remember the Soviet Union. And that Soviet Union is the very place that Vladimir Putin grew up in. He watched it fall apart under, you know, his, his, his own duties in, in, I think, East Germany, he was at the time. Um, he, he has a, a pathological dislike for Mikhail Gorbachev and Glasnost and Perestroika and all of that stuff. But before we get into him, um, perhaps you can also just explain to us the, the, this idea of Russia, because Russians themselves seem to be soul searching the whole time. It's very important to be Russian. There's a sense of destiny about Russia. And you know, when you talk about, uh, this, this very unpopular term now, exceptionalism, we often talk about American exceptionalism. Most Russians view themselves as being part of an exceptional culture, part of an exceptional history. And, and, and Russia is on a course to somewhere, according to all Russians. Where do you think that comes from? It's very different to if you asked a you know, Ghanaian or a, or a Peruvian about their country? Yeah, I, I think that's, that, that's, that's an excellent question because um, I think something is happening right now. Um, I mean, it's been several years in the making, it's been several decades in the making. But uh, what we're witnessing now is Russia kind of trying to reinvent itself and break out of you know, the European and Western civilization, which it's aspired to be part of for three decades, ever since independence. And it's very easy to forget, firstly, how recently it has been that Russia became a post-colonial country. I mean, for, you know, for Britain, most European countries, it's been 70, 80 years since the end of the colonial period. In Russia, it's been 30 years. It's mm. within uh, a lifetime or within half a lifetime, we're talking about Vladimir Putin. And this idea that um, Russia is an exceptional uh, civilization has been around for centuries, but again, it's easy to forget that actually through the 90s and 2000s, Russia, Putin, the Russian elite wanted to be part of the club. They wanted even bizarrely, it's kind of strange to even remember this now. But in the early 90s, they were, they, the Russia actually wanted to join NATO. <laughs> there was this period where the Russians wanted to find themselves in you know, a prominent member of that sort of family of Western nations. You know, they joined the G8. Putin hosted the G8 in St. Petersburg before it became the G7 and got kicked out. But um, the, after Georgia, but um, so for, 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 for a long time, Russia has you know tried to be part of the Western club and they've been rebuffed. So part of the roots of this new imperialism is that they're trying to discover a new identity for themselves, having, you know, tried and failed to sort of, you know, play with the big boys and be the peer of America and be a partner of America. And it's kind of understandable why they think that they are bigger and more important than they are. Because again, like, you know, just a generation ago, the Soviet Union was, you know, the main peer. It was the main opponent of, mm. uh, of the United States. It was the second superpower. And they definitely considered themselves superior and more and wealthier than China 30 years ago. But now, and, and, and it's, and, and, and it's worth. It's worth reflecting on, on, on Vladimir Putin's age at the time in the 70s when Russia was in the ascendant. And really, you know, the West was struggling at that time. You could argue that, that Russia was, was probably on a course to, uh, to greater glory than any other country in the 70s. That was his formative time. And he probably felt quite buoyant about the future of the Soviet Union. He wouldn't have predicted its collapse only a few years later. 
Well, that's true. And, and, and again, um, you know, we, we, we keep coming back to this idea of the psychodrama. Um, uh, I mean, I, I, I'm a historian by, by education. So, so I'm a little bit wary of sort of pop culture, pop psychological theories about these things, but there is definitely a sense of personal grievance. That not just Vladimir Putin, but everybody of Putin's generation. He was born in '53, just turned 70. Uh, so '52, just turned 70 last year. So he's uh, he was he grew up in a country that he considered to be and was told was the greatest country in the world, and he had you know decent reasons to believe that. You know, the Soviet Union was projecting power all over Asia, Africa. You know, the Soviet Union was a big deal. It was a superpower. It it, 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 it was the the, the imperial master of half of Europe. I mean, it was a superpower. And then mm. that collapsed in front of his eyes. Firstly, internally, you know, the entire command economy of the Soviet Union falls apart. Then the Soviet Union itself falls apart. Uh, everything about Russia becomes kind of embarrassing and crappy from its drunken president, from its inability to actually feed itself, from the fact that they're accepting humanitarian aid from the Americans, they're called bush legs, you know, those um, sort of cheap broiler uh, chicken legs that came into Russia in the early 90s. It was unbelievably humiliating, especially mm. for somebody who had been, like Putin, a member of, like, the elite. So just on a personal level, um, there is just that profound trauma of living through the spectacle of seeing your country sort of humiliated and poor and completely not not taken account of on the international stage. So a big part of not just Putin's psychology and actions, but actually the psychology of all of his voters, of all Russians, they have that very deep, you know, within living memory, they've experienced how disastrous the things that the West told them would be great, democracy, great, capitalism, great. But actually democracy for Russians was chaos and capitalism was corruption. And they remember that. It's not just an abstract concept. That's something that's really deep. And that's the reason why, for instance, I've been constantly surprised. I've been to Russia three times now since the beginning of the war. Last time I was there in September, October. And uh, it's really surprising. People that you would think would know better, like, you know, smart, educated, well-traveled Russians, not even sort of old, kind of poor Soviet-type Russians, but, you know, so generally recognizable international European people, you know, he sort of bumped into the Venice Biennale, like, you know, sort of cool Russians. And you see people like that kind of starting to pontificate about, yeah, but the, the West always had it in for us, you know, and they're, they're, they're just resentful that Russia stood up. And all of this, like, BS. It's sort of this, it, it's it's very personal. This kind of politics is very personal for Russians. It's, they, under, they associate their own self-respect with the respect that their country gets or doesn't get around the world. Well, I mean, this nationalism is such a magnet and, and we've seen how when it's, when it's utilized in, in a powerful way by a leader who knows how to, how to kind of formulate and twist and, and project that power, it can be very devastating. I think, I think this is the question that I really wanted to ask you only a few chapters into the book and I'm going to go straight for it because there's lots we could talk about afterwards, but this is at the, at the center of it for me. Why did a guy who seemed to me to be so calculated and, and to you in the beginning of the book, he was a puppet master. He was methodical. He was like a, a chess player of, of the kind that only Russia can provide. Um, he, he had thought about every move in every direction for many years before he made it. 
He had kept a lot of people on side. He convinced George W. Bush. He was a great guy. I'll never forget that speech at the Crawford, Texas ranch where George W. said, I looked at his cross and I knew I was talking to someone I could, I could see into his soul kind of thing. And then he went from that almost overnight, you know, somewhere in, in the COVID craziness, it appears that he suddenly decided to be this brash risk taker. It, it's almost like a personality change. Uh, well, that's, that, that, that's definitely what it looks like from outside. And I, um, but actually, if you unpack it a little bit, um, you actually see that he's been a risk taker all along. The difference is that the risks that he took before were kind of calculated risks. They were manageable risks. So, for instance, like invading Georgia, as he did in, in, yeah. in, in 2008, that was an insane risk. You know, he's literally sort of going into a sovereign country. You know, who knows how the Europeans are going to react? His entire economy is based on exporting, you know, gas and things to Europe. You know, that's right. a calculated risk, but he takes it and he wins. Turns out Europe doesn't care. Um, he, he takes a calculated risk in getting involved in, in taking Crimea. It's a snap decision. Uh, again, higher stakes. But and you know Europe is shocked and horrified, and Angela Merkel says after the annexation of Crimea in February 2014, this must not stand. It's aggression. It's a land war in Europe. And then like hey, Prosper, eleven so thirteen months later, Angela Merkel is sitting at the at the table signing a ten billion euro gas pipeline deal with Gazprom. So obviously Putin's mm-hmm. gamble paid off. Europeans paid paid more attention to their economic well-being than they did to their principles. And, uh, and, and, and the list goes on. Like Syria, he took a huge risk in getting involved in Syria. It, it was a disaster for the United States. It cost him trillions of dollars. Putin managed to completely transform the whole dynamics of the Syrian war by deploying just one squadron of aircraft, 32 aircraft and 2,000 personnel. And like, hey, presto, he's won the Syrian war. We're like, and so, so the, the bottom line is, it's not that he hasn't been a risk taker, is that he's been, his risks have been relatively manageable and he's been lucky and the but the problem is with the ukraine war he thought that he was just taking you know another step forward and that actually what the plan was that was that actually the invasion of ukraine was just a massively aggregated aggravated coup and he thought i mean he was told by his intelligence chiefs he was told by his military chiefs that sure you know we've brought up we've bribed all these people in the Ukrainian security um, uh, establishment and in the government and in the army. And, you know, it's going to be a cakewalk. And um, we're going to overthrow Zelensky, whose ratings, by the way, were about 30% at that time. Yeah. So we're just going to roll him over. And, you know, we're just going to walk away from this. It's going to be another Crimea. Except that this time he wasn't lucky. He just was wrong. So in that sense, I don't think it's that he changed from this sort of calculating, you know, sort of three-dimensional chess player to an idiot. I think he was actually just suddenly, you know, you know, hubristically, you know, all gamblers. He was always a gambler, but as all gamblers end up doing, he just staked too much on the wrong hand. And like it, like a child who sort of pushes their limits with their parents until the parents eventually say no and give them a smack. And this was his smack and he probably didn't see it coming. And, and probably by his calculations, the way you've explained it now, 
he also reckoned that the people of Luhansk and Donetsk, they would, they would go along with it too. And he'd have that to back him up. Um, you know, a large percentage of those people are Russian speaking, identify as culturally Russian. The Crimea was kind of a done deal by that stage too. And they need their warm water port, et cetera, et cetera. So he thought this is a good strategic move then. Well, in the sense of, of Lugansk and Donetsk, it's actually a, a big question, which we'll discuss, I think, in more detail when we talk about the end game of the war. But mm. what's happened in the rebel republics and the occupied, Russian occupied parts of, Russia, of, of Lugansk and Donetsk is that all the people that were pro Kiev, pro Ukrainian, have been bullied or terrorized into leaving. All the people mm. that remain actually are very pro Russian. And in fact, one of the big problems of this war is we haven't really had that much reporting from the Russian occupied territories. And actually, a friend of mine, Anne Niva, a great French reporter, actually went into Russian-occupied um, Donbass uh, in December. She did a great piece in, in Le Point, French, uh, French magazine. And she, in Lugansk and Donetsk, did not meet one single person. She was not with official minders. She just went on her own with a driver. She didn't meet a single person that wanted to rejoin Ukraine. In oh. the, among the remaining population, key point, remaining population. So two-thirds of the people have left that area. They, yeah. Some of them have left to Russia, some of them have left to Ukraine. It's, it's, it's been severely depopulated over eight years of war. But the point is that Putin believed, um, to answer your question, Putin believed that Russian speaking meant Russian supporting. So mm. that turned out to be very obviously not true. Because in fact, about, um, depends on, on how you really count it, but about four, roughly 40% of Ukrainians speak Russian as their first language. Um, it's changing generationally because uh, Ukrainian children, kids are educated in Ukrainian. So, you know, you have a sort of Ukrainian speaking kids, Russian speaking parents, that kind of thing. That's, what, that, that's very common. But as what, what, what the fundamental miscalculation in Putin was that, you know, the Russian speaking population wanted to be part of Russia. And that is certainly true in very, you know, in small areas in the rebel republics of Lugansk and Donetsk in the Crimea. But it turned out not to be true, for instance, in Ukrainian-controlled Donbass, which also is, in fact, you know, um, parts of Lugansk and Donetsk Oblast. That's where all the pro-Ukrainians went. There's been a sort of de facto ethnic sort of cleansing has, has, has occurred. But right. Zelensky himself is a Russian speaker. And mm. also, by the way, uh, this is, you know, meant to be sort of a big secret, but I mean, the <coughs> the language that is spoken at the Ukrainian Security Council meeting, at the Security Council meeting, the lingua franca, which everyone speaks most naturally in those confidential meetings in Kiev, including Zelensky, is Russian. And Zelensky's been really super smart about decoupling Russian speaking with Russian, with, with, with pro-Russian views. And in fact, that was why he was elected back in 2019 with 73% of the vote, because he promised First of all, to you know, be fair and respect the rights of Russian speakers in Ukraine, and also to end the war and reach a kind of rapprochement with with, with Putin. You know, there's there's so much um, confusion around all of this because obviously Western media outlets have their own angle on this, and some of them are are, are more kind of pro Zelensky than than is necessary. I think most people realize who the aggressor is in this war. I think most people have a fair idea, but we're also constantly being told about how strong the Ukraine is, is in, in, in military terms, how strong Russia still is, how much is still in the wings, uh, how, how, how thin they can spread themselves. We often hear things about how, you know, Zelensky's this, uh, this incredible war hero. He 
you know, arrives in the U.S. in fatigues and kind of goes in in a in a in a dark green T-shirt, which is kind of unheard of when you would address Congress. And we see people just desperate, you know, the, the Nancy Pelosi holding the the Ukraine flag uh, as a as a as a supporter in in Congress. These are things that we haven't seen in America before. I mean, we've never seen them kind of to this degree. And you can't help thinking that they're trying to to simplify something which is actually a lot more complex. What your book does is it explains the complexities of this, that it isn't just about one good guy, one bad guy. Uh, here's, here's the reason why these guys are winning or these guys are losing. And it's not simple because watching news coverage, it looks like it's really, you know, any idiot can understand this. It's not that simple, is it? Well, uh, let, let's unpack that a little bit. Uh, I think actually, uh, there is one good guy. There's one bad guy. If you're talking about the rules, I, I, well, I didn't, the, the reason, <laughs> sorry, the, the reason, I, the reason I bring this up is particular to South Africa because our own government has cozied up so much to, to put in over the years that, you know, our own foreign affairs minister just a short while ago, uh, made some sort of comment which inferred that we were, you know, we were looking at this from, Ukraine's point of view because they were the victim in this aggressive uh, attack which which was unwarranted and went against international law and she was very very quickly shut up by her colleagues in the party and in government and suddenly uh, just last week we had the the Russian foreign minister visiting us so South Africa in this country it's not entirely clear to many people including those in our government who the bad and the good guys are well, let, let, let's continue to, uh, to unpack this. Uh, you, you're, you're completely right that um, the situation, you know, the historical roots of this conflict, the sort of the basic um, ethnic conflicts within Ukraine, um, those are all complicated. What's not mm. complicated is the fact that actually Putin rolled the dice. He actually launched an aggressive war, <laughs> an aggressive invasion, and he lost his gamble. And in mm. that sense, Zelensky has actually been incredibly... Um, incredibly impressive as a leader, surprising not just himself, but surprising his opponents and surprising Putin by his actual seriousness, his charisma. And most importantly, I mean, arguably the most important thing that he's done, apart from actually uniting his own people, is actually bringing together this incredible coalition. It's really easy to forget that in the first week of the war, the the German defense minister told Zelensky that they, they didn't want the Germans wouldn't, they wouldn't send any more weapons because they assumed that he was going to lose. The Germans mm. sent 5,000 helmets, like, thanks very much, Germans. And now, sure. a year later, we're talking about heavy battle tanks. And that's Zelensky. Zelensky has actually been a brilliant media operator, which is not to say he's cynical. I mean, it's important. If you're fighting a war, on other people's treasure, and you'll need to get the populations of those democracies behind you. You need to be a media operator. That's not a cynical thing. It's yeah. actually just like a piece of national security. But just to go to the heart of your question, I mean, um, what is the, you know, who, who, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? I mean, unfortunately, uh, Putin kind of crossed out any kind of points that he could have made about the rights of Russians in the Donbass, or, you know, should we have, you know, should we redraw the borders? You know, all of those kind of reasonable arguments that could have happened basically just sort of went out of the window when, when the tanks rolled in. He kind of put himself in the wrong. So now we're in a different game, and the complications are actually important uh, when we're talking about the end game of the war and where 
you know, who gets what at the end of this conflict. But right now, it's really important to, bear, to, to, to understand that actually Zelensky essentially stands for, you know, a, I mean, there are problems with the Ukrainian democracy. It's, you know, uh, the, the free press is controlled by oligarchs. There's all kinds of difficulties. Sure. It's very far from a perfect democracy. But nonetheless, it is a pluralist, plural, it's, it is basically a sort of, it has a free press. It has a democracy which regularly changes uh, the, the governments. You know, they're basically, you know, on the side of the angels. They are an aspiring Western European country. And Russia is not. Russia is going in the opposite direction. So it's not totally unreasonable to actually see this war in somewhat Manichaean terms of, you know, sort of the people, people a lot like us or who are aspiring to be us, who are attacked by people who are, you know, very different from us, authoritarian, uh, nationalistic, right. uh, Christian fundamentalist and so on. Well, that, that's an interesting part of it, too. Um, and, and for many of us who haven't been to Russia and don't understand it entirely, uh, Vladimir Putin has also been engaged in a dance with the Russian Orthodox Church for a very long time. And that's, you know, that's not unusual either. It's something that the Tsars did very well prior to 1912. Um, do you just want to explain the role of, of religion in Russia and kind of how that's helped to buoy this nationalism and, and in many situations helped Vladimir Putin to to kind of give people a feeling of 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 something some glory from the past that they can attach themselves to because they don't want to think about the bread cues and the misery of the 90s and you know Boris Yeltsin and all of that stuff so this gives them something else yeah the, the Russian orthodoxy is a weird one is it, is it, is a very weird case because actually if you look at the statistics very few russians actually go to church on a regular basis it's not like mm. America, you know. <laughs> they're, yeah. they're, they're, um, it, in fact, the church-going numbers are kind of like, you know, basically atheist Europe. The difference between sort of basically atheist Europe or even like Catholic Europe <laughs> is that um, the religion, uh, the establishment of Russian Orthodoxy plays a really important role in the whole narrative of nationalism. So mm. people, you, you, you'll see people like p- pretending to be. Christian. I mean, to, to, pretending to be believers. I mean, they probably are believers, but like, you know, it's, it's, it's actually a performative persona of the, the good Russian is that he right. is a, you know, an orthodox believer. You know, they wear the crosses and they cross themselves and all this stuff. Mm. Whereas while actually not going to church, in fact, but so, and Putin has actually taken that power. Um, um, and in fact, you know, the moral right that he thinks that the endorsement of the, Orthodox Church confers on him and actually sort of, you know, put that on, uh, sort of attach that to the whole sort of Kremlin nationalist narrative. So it's not just, you know, we are right and this is a sort of, you know, um, you know, because of argument A, B and C. It's we are right because, you know, God Almighty says so. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, we are fighting against Satanists, literally. We see that here, here there's a lot of Russian television. They will literally tell you that mm. the Ukrainians are actual Satanists, as well as sorry, as well as being actual Nazis, they are also actual Satanists. Yeah. And the West is like some sort of weird synagogue of Satan, where you know all you know LGBTQ plus values have destroyed you know any kind of moral compass that the West has had. It, they really see it in sort of as this sort of. Armageddon type clash between like sort of the God fearing Russians and the godless yes, it's, of the West. It's, it's existential and, and, 
And I think that, you know, you've mentioned it a couple of times. So I I want to go there with the end game because a lot of people are looking at the story at the moment and they're watching it as it develops in the news and they're seeing, you know, that there are these, uh, Mario Pol, which we saw, you know, blown to smithereens. We've seen some Russian successes. We've seen the Ukraine push back very well in certain other areas. And it's hard to get to gauge just how far this is going to go. These, these new, um, Tanks that are being sent in, uh, they've, they've just, just stopped short of saying they're going to send F-16s, although the Polish will give air support, uh, the, Amer- the Americans might help the Polish, so there could be some kind of a game going on there too. But where does this end? Because the, the big fear for so many people is that Russia is still a nuclear power. It, it, it may be a third rate power in any other, other way but it has nuclear weapon more nuclear weapons than any other country actually um and that's not uh, an insubstantial thing to factor into the equation there's also the fact that neither side here seems willing to you know relent or to pull back at all uh zelensky says nothing short of of victory is on his agenda and putin says the same so where do we go owen where does this go from here what are the off ramps so let's, um, it, it's really worth going back to first principles here because actually, uh, in that very first, the very first briefing that General Mark Milley, uh, the U.S. Uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff gave to Joe Biden and the top U.S. national security team back in October to 2021 when he had that intelligence that it started to seem for real that Putin might be actually thinking about invading Ukraine. What was the first question on the agenda? was how do we enforce an international rules-based order without going to World War III? That Mm. was like point number one. And actually, fundamentally, it should remain, it remains for NATO point number one. How do you actually um, stop Putin in his tracks without actually provoking a direct kinetic war between NATO and Russia? And that red line of avoiding NATO involvement in, as, a, as a combatant has been pushed right to the, the very further stretching point. And already Lavrov last week, the Russian foreign, foreign minister said that the, that NATO is a, dan- is a dangerous, uh, has, has, has a dangerous and provocative involvement in the war. So like, and, you know, diplomatically, like involvement is just like a tiny little sort of shade away from actually declaring NATO a combatant. So that remains an enormously important red line. And the nukes actually remain basically the strategic priority for every serious Western NATO country. And it has an enormous impact on the end game of this war. For one simple reason is that actually if... Zelensky were to achieve what he says he wants to achieve, which is actually retaking Crimea and retaking the rebel republics of of Donbass, that is in no way politically survivable for Vladimir Putin. That is the end of the regime. So, okay, great, say the Ukrainians, like, let's get rid of that guy. He's just dangerous. But unfortunately, um, if you think about what that entails, like a very severe military collapse, you're essentially talking about a revolutionary situation within inside Russia, which is as you rightly say, one of the world's nuclear major nuclear powers, um, depending on how you count the warheads, are number one or number two. And the really dangerous point is that 
the main, the most vocal opposition, or let's say the most vocal criticism so far of the war that has been fought, that, 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 as, as it's been fought, hasn't come. Um, you know, the, the 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 obviously the liberal pro-Western intelligentsia has criticised Putin, but they're all most of them have left the country or they're in jail. The people yeah. who are still around in Russia who are criticising Putin are ultra-nationalists. No, they they are, hasn't far enough. They are the scary people who say, like, you know, stop, you know, pussyfooting about Vladimir, like, you know, take the gloves off and really, you know, screw right. those things up. And they are terrifying. I mean, I've met them. <laughs> they, you know, I know them well. Um, and that that's the danger. And so, for instance, when you when you Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, got a huge amount of flack back in a, in in May because Macron said Putin must not be humiliated. To which yep. many supporters of Ukraine, not unreasonably, said, like, you know, what are you talking about? Like, Putin must be humiliated. Obviously, like, that's what we're doing. We're going to, like, kick him out of the country and then, like, put him on trial in The Hague. You know, we're going to humiliate him. But what Macron was talking about was something that is actually remains a really sort of baseline political concern, is that if you humiliate Putin, then, you know, where does Russia go? And the real question becomes, uh, I'm wary of historical analogies but you know, let's go with this one you know what if what if vladimir putin is not hitler but actually you know kaiser wilhelm ii the german emperor who got his country into a stupid unwinnable war which right. was then followed by a humiliating defeat and which was followed by ultranationalism and hitler so you know that that that's um you know, that is a a, a a serious concern is and it's a serious point on which I think ultimately there's going to be a rift between the Western alliance and the Ukrainians is because if the Ukrainians push Putin all the way out, then you have a potentially far more dangerous situation in Russia than um, was the, the, the even more dangerous um, Russia than the Russia of Putin, which is already dangerous enough. And that's bad news, not just for the West, but for Russia, too. Who who are these who are these ultra nationalists and these these really dangerous people you're talking about? Because I've heard quite a lot about this this Wagner group, and you know they're quite they're quite active here in Africa. I spoke just the other day to uh, L.J. Fenter, who's just been to the Central African Republic and has watched them doing their work there. They're propping up a, a regime in the CAR. They're involved in Mali. They're involved in Mozambique as well, which is just across the border from us. Um, and in Russia, it seems that this Wagner group who, who are under the aegis of what Vladimir Putin's former chef, these people are also playing a, a very dangerous role in the Ukraine at the moment, aren't they? Well, uh, it's, um, yes, Russia has, uh, a gigantic military. The Soviet Union had a gigantic military. There's a lot of highly skilled, extremely violent people who's, you know, willing to sell those those deadly skills around the world and hence their involvement in uh, all these conflicts and also Libya which you didn't mention I mean, they were, were also very active in, in in Libya Wagner was founded in 2014 basically as a covert branch of the Russian intelligence services an armed active operational branch uh, because at that point uh, the, the the Russian military was operating undercover they, they, they were not admitting to direct involvement in the Donbass revolt against Kiev's rule. And it sort of snowballed into this gigantic business because, you know, Eugenie Prigozhin, the founder of Wagner, has realized that actually um, winning victories on the ground can actually win him political influence. Um, and as, as you will have read, he has uh, recruited 
by different accounts, between either 15,000 or 30,000 violent criminals, including multiple rapists and murderers, who have been given a uh, complete reprieve after six months of service in in Ukraine. It's literally an army of criminals. And it's very useful for the Kremlin because no one cares about these people. Right. They're expendable. They're also... they have so much to lose that they'll they'll fight in in ways that uh, other soldiers might not, um, because they'll not only be free afterwards, but they might even be heroes. Right, exactly. So 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 you know, for the Kremlin, it's very convenient because it's really important to to to, to understand that the only constraint on the Kiev on uh, the, the 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 major constraint on the Kiev war effort, which is already like a fully mobilized economy, it's a war economy. Mm-hmm. The only restraint on, Ukra- on Ukraine is material. The main restraint is material. They're fighting, you know, with all their strength and they need more material. The rest- restraint on Putin is political. He's actually right. trying to avoid, you know, actually this war becoming too noticeable because that's kind of the scary thing about Moscow and St. Petersburg. Uh, when you go there, the war is more or less invisible. It's extraordinary. It's like going going through the looking glass. People don't talk about it. It's sort of you know, it's in you know, it's in the air a little bit, but largely it remains an invisible war. And Putin. Well, um, on on that note, I mean, I've I've got some Russian friends who are not currently living in Russia. If you've got you know young sons, you probably, if you could, sent them away uh, because you don't want them recruited into the army. There was it was sort of a ban on on travel by adult males, whether it was formal or not, it made it very difficult for, for young men to get in or out um, shortly after the war started, or perhaps even a little bit before, depending on the sources. And there are also these mothers who are suddenly starting to take to the, the streets in very muted protest because we know it's not a free country where you can go and voice your disapproval of the government. But there are, there are things that are impacting negatively on Putin from within, aren't there? Um, I'm not sure there are, uh, or rather, I'm sure there are, but I, I don't, I'm not sure they're significant. So what we're really, really talking about, what, 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 what we're really talking about in the, when we answer that question is how vulnerable is Putin to internal dissent? Is he going to get overthrown, mm-hmm. and if so, how and by whom? So the, the 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 simple answer to that question sort of follows on from the point I just made is that actually there's a reason why. Putin is fighting with the Wagner mercenaries. It's the, there's a reason why they're recruiting these sort of neo, neo-Nazi football hooligans. There's a reason why they're trying to keep this war low-key and fought by expendable people because um, they have not yet price. sent they have not yet sent conscripts, for instance. Mm-hmm. They, they haven't. Um, they've mobilized men with military experience, supposedly. I mean, that's differently defined. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some people who just like went to some courses when they were at university and dead, deemed right. to be, you know, qualified. But anyway, but the point is it's 300,000 people out of 145 right. million people. It's actually mm-hmm. rather a small number of people. And, um, the, 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 the reason why he keeps that low key is precisely because it's politically dangerous to mobilize a massive amount of people. Um, because people, because they're, they're, there's going to be pushback. There were, there was small protests indeed in Dagestan. There was, there were, there were protests in Siberia, not the sort of usual kind of liberals, um, protesting in, in, in Moscow and St. Petersburg, but actually ordinary people. And that's really dangerous for the regime. And so mm-hmm. that's really the reason why Putin wants to keep this all low key. Um, if things start going really badly, he can, he can kick that up. He can. Right. Go to the next level. 
And when he had to do that, by the way, in 1999, when Putin was just appointed prime minister, um, and Yeltsin had announced that Putin was going to be his successor, and Putin had to prove uh, that he was going to be like a great tough leader and needed a reason to start a second war in Chechnya, which he won, uh, there were a series of unexplained apartment bombings. Hmm. Yep. Apartment bombings across Russia right. were blown up mysteriously. Over 300 people died. And now the evidence is pretty overwhelming that that was an FSB false flag attack. Now, I'm not saying that that's going to happen now, but I'm saying that these people are very ruthless and they have lots of dirty tricks in their repertoire. You know, Moscow has just, they publicly put up air defenses on top of public buildings around Moscow. <laughs> so I mean, some, some people interpreted that as like, oh my God, they're running scared. Like, you know, people that finally the war is coming home. But they did it deliberately, publicly. They right. Could have, right. They could have like put a tarpaulin on it, right? Right. Um, you know, and not call the news crews. But no, they didn't put a tarpaulin on it. They installed it publicly. Why? It's because if the war goes badly, then it can become a great patriotic war. It, be it can become an attack, and you know, a Ukrainian attack on Moscow. Which for, for nationalists is a gold mine. If a, if a rocket lands in central Moscow, heaven forbid, but I mean, if that were to happen, it becomes a different war. It's not a limited military operation. It's, you know, a holy war to save Russia. So, and we, and that's the kind of rhetoric that we're, that we're already seeing, but we're not actually sort of, we're, we're not, we're not there yet. So, so just so circling back to, to, to what, to, 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 to the question is like, is he going to be toppled or deposed? Um, uh, Russia has a different sort of standard for these things. Um, you know, if you are fighting a great patriotic war, then you don't complain about the leader of your great patriotic war. Um, if you're fighting a limited operation, which is sort of screwing up and is, and is you know, losing people money and people think it's a bad idea, then, you know, people can protest. But the point, the, 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 you know, there's a potential for people to protest. But Putin has an absolute defense against that by escalating. Mm. So what do you make then if you're like so many of us? Someone who gets most of your information from Western media outlets and they tell us that, you know, Ukraine's fighting back and they're valiantly pushing the Russians uh, back into their own territory. They're, they're managing to, um, to, to make real inroads that Russia has a, a, a defunct and, and aged technological military backup, um, that Vladimir Putin has, has exhausted so much of his public support already. That's obviously a kind of propaganda, just like what you'd see if you were watching RT from the other point of view, right? Um, well, um, yeah, I def I, I, I detect a, a hint of skepticism in your both, in your voice, Gareth, when you go through that. There's <laughs> more yeah. than a hint. I've, I, I read, your, I read your book and, and I'm, I'm trying to kind of get you to say the things that I'm gleaning from it without saying them myself. <laughs> no, I mean, the, um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's definitely true. Um, the, the, the Ukrainians did have some, some battlefield success that actually they, mm. um, the, 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 the Russians are running out of, um, of, uh, their high, high tech weapons. But, um, and the Russians are obviously undis ill disciplined. They're badly motivated. Uh, a lot of them are mercenaries. Um, you know, Russia has a bad army. Uh, however, it has a big army. Mm. And, that's sort of the important equation that we need to keep our eye on. 
because although the Ukrainians are better led, they're definitely more motivated, they have better morale, they have better equipment than the Russians. But the problem is that on a scale, you know, in a military conflict, um, the, uh, you know, when you plot quantity against quality, unfortunately, mm. there, there comes a point when those two lines intersect. You know, quantity yeah. will always beat quality because yeah. there's such volume of it. And just to give you a concrete example of that, I mean, the, 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 we're talking about the you know tanks. Uh, Leopard two, Germany's committed twenty five. Um, Britain has committed fourteen. There's others coming from Poland and so on. Russia pre war had twelve thousand four hundred tanks. Yeah. So you know, um, I, I mean, I'm not a military expert myself, but I'm guessing that you know. However great a Challenger 2 or a Leopard 2 tank is, you know, one Leopard 2 versus, you know, 50, you know, one great Leopard 2 against 50 crappy Russian tanks. I'm still, I'm guessing the, the crappy Russian tanks will still win. I mean, that's kind of a crude well, example. Yeah, that's what I'm well, thinking. Hi- yeah, and history has shown us repeatedly how Russia can only be underestimated the peril of those who underestimate. Uh, you know, the, the numbers are just vast and the, and the territory is vast. And, you know, Russia can can call on resources that that many countries can't. In in some ways, they're almost self sufficient, which you can't say about other countries. You know, the oil, the the gas, the minerals. The they obviously have technological imperatives which can't be met in some respects. Um, you know, it's it's not as if they can get hold of microchips from South Korea or Taiwan or. Or, or produce a lot of the stuff that the U.S. can for itself, but really Russia can keep going for a very long time before they're in big, big trouble. And Napoleon learnt this, Hitler learnt this, and God knows how many more before them. Uh, that, that's definitely true, but it kind of depends on, on on how you define sort of survival, because mm. um, and, we, and and again, this sort of feeds into uh, into the, what we were discussing a moment ago about you know what the people think about all this stuff. Is right. that you know, Russian people? If you're talking about Napoleon and talking about Hitler, you're talking about a great, you know, two great what the Russians call patriotic wars. In fact, yeah, uh, you know, in that circumstance where your the, the you know the future of your country is in fatal peril, you know, people have a very high tolerance threshold. Um, in all other circumstances, Russian people are just Russian people. They just, you know, they're right. just like normal people. Um, they, they actually have expectations and they have dreams and they have, uh, and, and they, they have resentments and they, they realize very well when the government is, is, has stopped working. So, you know, in the sense of like, you know, can they survive this? You know, do they have enough sort of, you know, wheat and barley and rye and, and vegetable oil <laughs> and, and, you know, yeah. you know, all this sort of you know, salt, you know, all that stuff that you, that, you know, the survivalists have a cellar. Yes, they do. Yeah, definitely they do. Yeah, but, sure. you know, but, you know, if you're talking about, you know, do they have enough, you know, Volkswagen Passats and iPhones, you know, that sort of, that, that, the, the appearance of that kind of level of consumerism is going to be painful. Is it going to cause a revolution? No. It's, but is it going to cause like basically the sort of slow economic death of Russia or maybe even not so slow? But I mean, you know, it, is it going to cause the 1990s crisis and brain drain and profound loss of faith in, in, in the state and the government? I think yes. So, so survival, yes, but actually sort of long term, they're just, you know, they're completely you know, uh, they, they completely destroyed their own future. Well, in your in your final chapter, you talk about the economy and and how that may be the 
the tender part of, of Putin's plan. That might be the most vulnerable piece of the pie. Um, and, and maybe you can just explain that economic blitzkrieg that you go into in, in your chapter on the price of illusion, because I think that's something that probably hasn't been explored too much when people are talking about tanks and, you know, F-16s and they're talking about numbers of, of, of soldiers. Uh, the, the economic toll on, on Russia is already, um, for some, uh, too much. Uh, well, the, the, it's, it's an interesting story because uh, uh, what, uh, something happened at the beginning of the war which nobody expected, uh, and that was that um, Russia kind of expected there would be sort of sanctions, there'd be banking sanctions, you know, things like so Russian state companies cannot, you know, you know borrow money, money or, or list on Western sanctions. So those kind of state sanctions uh, mm-hmm. were expected. But what happened was, under social media pressure, literally under the pressure of like sort of TikTokers, you know, <laughs> whole swathes of Western companies withdrew. You know, from mm. Coca-Cola's idea, you know, that hundreds of them, right. uh, you know, over a thousand of them withdrew. And actually, that nobody was expecting that. And it turns out that actually private corporations wield as much power economically as uh, as nation states do. But even that was not terribly fatal. I mean, the, the Russians replaced their you know McDonald's with their own sort of you know comedy rubbish McDonald's using the same machine. I mean, you know, they have their own sort of comedy rubbish Russian Starbucks. It's true. Uh you know with the same leg you know like ripped off label. It's, it's sort of it's kind of sad really. But anyway, but 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 so, so you know you know that's not fatal. That's not sort of we're not in sort of you know bread riot territory, the fact that they can't get a sure. Big Mac, right? Um nonetheless it was you know economically damaging. But the part that actually, again, no one really expected was that the fact that Russia would use its gas so ineptly and that mm-hmm. weapon, the energy weapon, which everyone feared so much, was so ultimately so, uh, useless because mm. no Western sanctions included oil or gas. They didn't include oil. Sorry, they included oil. They didn't include gas. The most important export was not included in sanctions. But guess what? The Russians decided to sanction themselves. That was smart. Back, they cut off the supply of gas to Germany. You know, expecting Germany to sort of quake in fear, and the result was gas prices spiked by almost two hundred times. But then, guess what? Like, if you don't, if you, if, you, if you're not, if the Russia is not supplying gas. You buy gas from someone else because, surprise, surprise, gas became fungible. You can liquefy it. It's more expensive, but you can liquefy right. it just like oil. And then guess what? Like last month, December, midwinter, um, in our hemisphere, um, <laughs> the, the, uh, wholesale price of gas in Europe falls to pre-war levels. Europeans mm. are now paying less for their gas with no Russian gas. Russian, the, 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 right. the Portion of Russian gas supplied to Europe went from like 35% to like close to 0%. It's now like 3 or 4%. They lost, the Russians entirely lost the, 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 the Russian gas market, the European gas market. The Americans got it. The Americans have exported more than one point, uh, something like 1.3 trillion euros has been spent on, right. mostly with Europe, with, with, um, US American companies. I mean, it's insane. But, you know, that was the great energy weapon, the thing that was meant to terrorize Europe, you know, didn't terrorize Europe. And the result was that Putin just shot himself in the foot. So ironically, you know, the, the West tried to wage war economically on Russia, but ultimately Russia really waged economic war on itself. Like, on itself. You know, 
on made a series of terrible decisions. And now, instead of exporting uh, you know, Gazprom, the major state-owned Russian gas, gas company, accounts for 25% of state revenues. It's the com- Gazprom revenues have fallen by 45%. Wow. And, and, and America America is the big beneficiary of that, which you, you, you hinted at just now. Yes. Yeah. So, Owen, uh, for for those people who are too lazy to kind of pay attention to all this this incredible detail, and really, what I what I have to say about the book too is that you you tell stories of of people as a part of this, which you know, people on the ground, and you you talk about people who are in apartments in the Donbas region. You talk about people who are soldiers. You talk about people who are fleeing um, journalists, and and you can really get into it in in a in a way which. I really haven't seen any other authors or commentators speak about, and, and certainly not to the degree that you do. But for those people who want to rush to the end and say, all right, how does the movie end? Um, we've spoken about possible ways it could go in terms of, you know, how economically, militarily, politically things could go. What's the best case scenario here? Because nobody wants World War Three. Uh, Vladimir Putin doesn't want to end up uh, being ousted because God knows what that could mean for, for Russia, let alone for him. Zelensky doesn't want to be fighting a war until he's a gray old man because God knows his populace probably won't want him to and wouldn't want to be involved in something as e- extended as that. So what's the best case scenario for us? Um, I'm, a, uh, you know, I'm a journalist. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a uh, a fortune teller. So I, I, I tend to steer clear of predictions, but I, I think, I think we can, we can safely say that, uh, whatever splits there are in the NATO, you know, the Austrians and the Hungarians and the Croats, you know, are mm. against weapons, but no one cares about those people. It, it's only America that's making a, the running on this materially. They're sending right. like 400 times more than everyone else. It's, it's all about America. So as mm. long as you know, various sort of Republican wing nuts like Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, with their, you know, we will not send another penny to Ukraine, like stay in their box. And they're, she's already, she's, by the way, a small, or rather vocal minority of the Republican Party who are not yeah. government. <laughs> but the, um, the, as long as America stays resolved, Ukraine will continue to push back. That's the bottom line. Now, the, 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 and, and I think that the, Russians, the, 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 the Russians may do better than expected in the spring offensive for all the reasons we've talked about. You know, they got, they got the men, they got all the sort of dumb material, they got the volume behind them. But, you know, sure. and they may make some, some gains. But ultimately, I don't think that, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, NATO will allow, you know, a, you know, a catastrophic collapse of, of, of the Ukrainian army. And I think the Ukrainian army eventually with those new tanks and heavy weapons and, and uh, high, high accuracy, um, rocket propelled artillery will, push back but the question comes to answer your to, you know, to answer your question like what is the realistic end game the end game occurs when ukraine has actually sort of reached something close to pre-war borders right and you come to a point where you um you know russia reaches a point at which further losses would be catastrophic for the regime and therefore they do everything possible to stop that retreat. And Ukraine you know, is, as, is exhausted by its advances. And you end up with a situation, it's not really clear where the, that front line will be, but it's not going to be 
1991 borders of Ukraine. Russia's and, going and- to hold on to Ukraine. And, and that's going to be the reality. Whatever the exact modalities of it is, the actual chances of the Ukrainians pushing Russians out of all of Ukraine are yeah. operationally and you know, strategically unbelievably unlikely. And also... And, and if Zelensky pushes his advance and he, he takes his chances at the Crimea, that could lead to a very different war. It's a very different war. I mean, I, I, th- I think, frankly, it's not even worth seriously considering because I don't think okay. that, that, that we're going to be anywhere close to that kind of situation. I mean, already, for instance, if, there, if, the, if the Ukrainians were seriously to threaten Mariupol, you know, hmm. that, that's the, the jewel in the crown. I mean, it's actually, it actually is a very oh. nice, well, it was a very nice town before the Russians totally destroyed it and turned it yeah. into stunning. But, you know, that, that, that's something that's very symbolic for, you know, if the Russians lose Mariupol, then they're really in sort of, you know, military collapse, regime change territory, and they're going to do everything possible to, to, to avoid that. But, 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 the, but the single most important thing to bear in mind is that actually, um, however brave and determined, uh, and united the Ukrainians are, it's NATO and the West that has the throttle, its hand on the throttle of the material. And the, the Ukrainians can't fight without continued massive supply from the West. So in many ways, actually, the future endgame of the war is basically in the hands of NATO's allies, however much NATO's allies, Ukraine's allies in NATO, however much the Americans and NATO might protest that actually it's all up to the Ukrainians. It's really not. Wow. Well, the book is called Overreach. Um, I, I can't say enough good things about it for those people who want to really know what's going on. It is Owen Matthews' book. He has been our guest today. Owen, it's a great pleasure to, to speak to you. I know how busy you've been with many other podcasts and interviews and all the rest of it. So I, I, I'm very glad and grateful for your time. And well done on this book. It's, it's just, it's the, it's the best explanation of of what's going on with with a whole lot more meat on the bones than than I expected to find. So thank you. Thank you. My great pleasure. It's been a great. It's, it's been been great to be on, Gareth. And I promise I didn't put on the mood lighting to try and make it seem romantic. We've got power <laughs> issues in South Africa. In fact, I I think I think we may be uh, using some Russian uh, friends and technology to try and sort out what is a crisis here on on, on our own territory as well but we don't know how how distracted uh, putin is at the moment whether or not this is his, his priority in any which way thank you very much thank you gareth